Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. But let's just review where we're at because um, we've been in chapter 5 for a long time. And chapter 5 starts with the Beatitudes, if you remember. All the blessed are the... And I want to draw your attention to chapter 5, verse 6 again. Because it, this is kind of a central theme in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And then Christ comes and says that he's come to fulfill the law. And then in verse 20 of chapter 5, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on to give six illustrations of what this righteousness looks like. And if you remember, the six illustrations are not just outward sins, but also sins of the heart. So the first one he talks about is anger. He says anger is equal to murder. Um, I'm going to send this back around just because more people are coming in. <laughs> the second one, he talks about adultery, but he says lust in the heart is equal to adultery. And then last week, we spent a long time talking about divorce, and he talks about the sanctity of marriage. And then he talks about oaths and how we need to speak um, truthfully, let our yes be yes. Then he talked about retaliation and not taking revenge. And then he did the radical thing and said that we should love our enemies and pray for those who, who persecute us. Okay, so he gives those six illustrations in chapter 5. As we move into chapter 6, Jesus is going to continue to focus on the heart, but now he's going to talk about motivations. Why do we obey? Will we obey Jesus because we love him and we desire to serve him, or do we obey him in how we look before other people? So we can look good before other people. So other people will look at us and say, man, they're so religious or they're so Christian or they're so spiritual. What's our motivation? And so what he's going to do is he's going to talk about motivations here. And and a key word that's going to show up is hypocrite. Hypocrite, hypocrite, over and over again, hypocrite. We may want to close that door, somebody, because the youth are moving into the foyer and it's going to be loud here in just a minute. So we give them a free pass because they're youth. They can be loud. I was a youth pastor once. We were really loud. Um, I was able to, yeah. So, But now, one of the key words that Jesus is going to introduce in chapter 6 is the word hypocrite. He's going to compare what a person that is a Christian does versus what a hypocrite does. And so, one of the things that I want to sh- bring up is just 1 John 2.29 He says this, If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of God. What's the whole Sermon on the Mount about? Practicing your righteousness. In other words, being holy, living the Christian life, doing what God calls you to do. And John here says one of the evidences that you've been born again, one of the evidences that you are a Christian, is that you have a lifestyle that practices righteousness. 
You hunger and thirst for righteousness. Your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees. And so what Jesus is going to do, first of all, in chapter 6, he's going to give three examples of the way the Jewish people, especially the Pharisees and the religious leaders, would practice their righteousness. Okay, he's going to address three areas. Prayer, basically almsgiving, giving to the needy, prayer, and fasting. So these three things were things that in the Jewish culture everybody did to look religious. You'd give to the poor, you'd pray, and you'd fast. So Jesus says you need to do those things. He's saying don't stop doing those things, but he tells us what our motivation should be in doing those things. Why are you, why are you doing that? Why are you giving to the needy? Why are you praying? And why are you fasting? So let's, first of all, look at giving to the needy, chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. So Jesus uses a beware there. He starts with beware, look out, be on the guard of practicing your righteousness in what way? In order to be seen by other people. So what's your motivation? Jesus says, if you're going to be obedient to me, are you doing it just so you can look good to other people? Are you doing it to impress others? Are you doing it so other people will look at you and say, oh, wow, they must really be spiritual? Or are you doing it for another type of motivation? So let's look at giving to the needy. Thus, verse 2, when you give to the needy, Sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand's doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, he says the hypocrites have received their reward. What does that mean? hypocrites give in outward ways to be seen and they have the reward in other words what the reward is of doing your righteousness so others can see you is their praise people praise you that's the reward you receive it's temporary it's fleeting but hey you've done your 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 duty out there so people can see and they clap clap and say wow you're really spiritual they pat you on the back you've received your reward from men but that's not the type of reward we want to receive now we don't really know what this reward is Jesus says, you will receive, your your Father who sees you will reward you. Don't ask me what that means. I don't know if that means we'll be rewarded here on earth or if we will be rewarded in heaven. I know it means we'll be rewarded in heaven, but I, I don't know exactly how that all plays out. I don't know what it looks like. All I know is that Jesus says that our Father will reward you. So when you receive that reward, just be thankful, whatever it is. Okay, so I don't know exactly how that all plays out. Okay? But look at what the, Jesus said about the Pharisees in John 12, 42-43. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. That, that's probably the key, the key phrase in this entire section. These people love the glory of man, the praise of man, 
the reward of man more so than they do just the humble coming before God and serving him. So we should give to the needy. Now, I don't know how often we're to give. Jesus doesn't prescribe how you should give, what amount you should give, when you should give, but he assumes that we're going to be giving people, giving to the needy, giving to the poor. And he says, when you do that, don't make a big deal of it. Do it secretly. Do it anonymously. Do it in a way that doesn't draw attention to yourself. If you're going to be generous, don't be the type of person that when the offering plate stands by, you kind of cough and stretch and, you know, get out your $300 bill or whatever. This is a $300 bill. It's not $300. You're, you're three, three 100s and you kind of plop them down so everybody looks around. I mean, that's, that's obviously a, a pretty weird or outlandish illustration, but Jesus is just saying here, if you're going to give and you're going to be generous, don't make a big deal of it. Okay? All right, let's talk about prayer. Because Jesus, this is where we get the Lord's Prayer. And I don't know if it should be called the Lord's Prayer. Really, the Lord's Prayer is in John 17, the high priestly prayer. This is really what I would really consider the model prayer, because Jesus says this is how you should pray. Um, So, let's read this. Verse 5. And when you pray, not if you pray, but when you pray... You must not be like the hypocrites. Okay, there's the hypocrites again. What do the hypocrites do? For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who's in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Okay. Jesus is not condemning any type of public praying here, okay? Because if that were the case, I'd be in trouble every Sunday, because I pray publicly in a worship service. He's not condemning, like, praying in public. What he's doing is saying, don't make a big showy deal and, and be this, like, hypocritical prayer person don't like in that culture they'd go stand in the synagogues remember the pharisee and the tax collector he would stand there and and pray loud so everybody could hear him Um, and so it's not public praying that jesus is against it's public praying when the focus is drawn to self-centered religion religious show instead of praying in private to the lord in humility in a way not to draw attention to yourself so the first way we pray is you know I've never seen anybody, some, this, this, most people aren't prone to this as much. In the old days when I was growing up in Southern Baptist Church in Texas, we had this one deacon that prayed every Sunday, and literally it was like a 15-minute prayer. Has that deacon that prays. And I mean, it was like these and thous, and pretty soon, like, and I was like a kid, I mean, like, okay, we get the point, and, but I think there's some people that like to pray to hear themselves talk, and they're praying to, to impress others. I don't see that as much in our church. If I see the exact opposite, people are scared to death to pray out loud in our church. And so there's a lot of people that are really fearful of that. So I don't see that much of an issue. But the other one here is an interesting thing. He talks about babbling or being repetitive or or maybe, you know, repeating a certain phrase over and over again as, as somewhat of an incantation. And so he says, secondly, there in verse, um, Seven, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases. Uh, That word empty phrases there, heap up empty phrases, is a rare word in the Greek language that really means to babble or to um, just kind of go on and on. So 
the way we should pray should not be babbling repetition like the pagans do, as if the louder or more repetitive our prayers, the more God is bound to answer. Um, it's this whole idea of there's really no meaning to what you're praying. You're just praying words over and over again, you know, getting as loud as you can and maybe saying, in Jesus' name, and saying it as, you know, louder and louder and, and doing all this stuff to try to get God to answer you, and there's no meaning behind it, okay? So Jesus talks about ostentatious, repetitive, self-centered, public praying to draw attention to yourself. But he looks, or he tells us how we should pray. So, Verse 9, pray then like this. Anytime Jesus tells us how to pray, pay attention. This is how you do it. You want a how-to? Jesus tells you how to pray. Now, before we start, this is not a cookie-cutter template. Like some of you that were Catholic growing up, you said the Lord's Prayer, and it was like a rote thing, and it had no meaning, but you said it. Okay? This is a template not to be done by rote or by just mindless repetition, it's the concepts, and we'll talk about it in a minute, it's the concepts and truths and structure of the prayer that really Jesus gives as a pattern. So let's read the Lord's Prayer, and then let's talk about it. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we also for, have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And some older manuscripts, or not some newer manuscripts, has for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Uh, <clears throat> some of the oldest manuscripts don't include that, that doxology at the end. So what I want to do is I want to give, I got a couple of top ten lists tonight, okay? So maybe you're in a Dave Letterman mood, I don't know. Um, Here's a top ten list teaching the principles of prayer. Jesus gives, and there's probably more, but I've narrowed it down to ten things Jesus teaches here about prayer. If Jesus says, don't pray like this, but pray like this, here's ten things he teaches us. And here's the first one, that he, before he even tells us how to pray. God sovereignly knows what we need before we even ask him. Go back up to verse 8. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. When you pray, you're not giving God a list of things that He doesn't know. So here's the question then. Okay, then why do we pray? If we're not giving God information, and we're not giving God requests, and we're not giving God a list, then why are we praying if He already knows what we need? Shouldn't He just automatically answer us and automatically do stuff for us? Why do we pray? I'm going to throw it out there as a question. Go ahead, Sonia. Um, Okay, he wants us to ask him? Okay, good. What are some of the reasons? Okay, to align us to his will. Excellent. Anybody else? Those are are all good, great answers. I would say this. Prayer shows us utter reliance upon God and his power. And we come in a posture of humility and dependence and we come for the intimacy of just being with Jesus. We come because we need him. We come because we desire him. And um, we come because we're drawing near in desperation to God. And it's more to align our wills with him, but it's also to connect our heart with his. Okay, so that's, that's principle number one, is that when we're praying, God already knows what we need. 
So we're not giving him a list of things that God, you're not surprising God when you're praying. You're, I didn't know that. He knows what you need before you ask him, but he still wants you to ask so that you can draw near to him. Okay, this one is not as explicit in this text, but it's explicit in other places in the Bible, and that's this. Prayer is addressed to the Heavenly Father in the name of Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Trinity is involved in our praying. Now, Jesus specifically tells us here to pray to our Father. So he says, pray to the Father. Okay? In other places, especially like in Paul's writings, where we have some of Paul's recorded prayers, like in Ephesians chapter 3 and in Colossians chapter 1, Paul says, I bow before the Father, and he prays, and then he also, you know, we come in the name of Jesus. So, you know, you don't necessarily... You don't necessarily have to end every prayer within Jesus' name. Okay? If you forget to do it, it's not like your prayer doesn't get there. (laughs) It's not like a mantra. When we pray in Jesus' name, it's not something we tag on to the end of a prayer. It's we're coming in the power and the authority of who Jesus is, knowing that he's our sovereign, he's our king. So we pray to the Father in the name of Jesus, but we pray in the power of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit's the one that gives us the ability to pray. He's the one that lives inside of us. He's the one that gives us the strength to be able to do that. So it's not inappropriate to pray to Jesus. It's not inappropriate to pray to the Holy Spirit. It's not inappropriate to pray to the Father. In my praying, I pray to all three. I usually start out with praying to the Father because that's how Jesus tells us. And then I switch to praying to Jesus and asking Jesus for things. And then I start asking the Holy Spirit and praying to him and intermingle it sometimes. Yes. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And we're going to talk a little bit about, I can't remember if that's this week or next. No, I think that's next week. Yeah, when it says ask and it will be given to you, seek, knock, and ask. We're, we're going to revisit that. But yes, when we pray in Jesus' name, we're praying in his character, we're praying in his authority, we're praying to align ourselves with who he is as, as our Savior and as our Lord. And the only, way we can, the only way we can pray to the Father is through Jesus. And the only way we can do that is because the Holy Spirit lives in us, okay? Now, let's look at the actual prayer itself. The address to God as Heavenly Father shows his eternal sovereignty. Notice how the prayer starts, Our Father in Heaven. Now, I can stop, we, I can do a lot of teaching on this prayer. So let's just go slowly through this prayer. Are you guys okay with that? How does it start? Does it start my father or our father? Our father. Why, is there, why is it our father and not my father? What does the our communicate? We're a, we're a family. We're connected together in relationship, and we're praying to our father. It's not a privatized thing. It's a, we're a family praying to our father. Our father in heaven. The prayer doesn't start with asking God for stuff. The prayer doesn't start with listing out all the things we want God to do. The prayer starts with an address to God and his sovereignty and his power and his position. Where is he? He's in heaven. Let me give you some scriptures, especially from the Psalms, that speak about God being in heaven. Psalm 57, 5. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. 
Psalm 71, 19. Your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens. You who have done great things, O God, who is like you? Psalm 89, 11. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. Is there anything that's not under God's purview? I mean, he's over all. Psalm 103, 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. And Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Now, let me give you an exercise before you turn the page. Well, you can turn the page. You've got, let's see here. One, two, three, four. You've got five psalms. I challenge you this week to take those five psalms and in personal time of prayer, Read those psalms, pray those psalms back to the Lord, and spend time worshiping him for who he says he is in those psalms. That will be a great exercise in prayer and getting you to start practicing praising our Father in heaven. I mean, think about the richness of what, that mean, what these psalms mean. And so Jesus starts the prayer with our focus on Father in heaven, our heavenly Father. He's sovereign, he's eternal, he rules, and he reigns. But not only that, what does it say? Hallowed be your name. Number four, the address to God as hallowed shows that his name alone is holy. That word hallowed means holy. Holy is your name. God's name alone is holy. There's no other name There's no other God. God is separate. God is distinct. God is awesome. God is powerful. God is holy. Not only is he eternally sovereign as our Father, but he is absolutely holy. And so the first part of this prayer focuses our attention upon the sovereignty and majesty of God. Let me give you some more scriptures that talk about the holiness of God. Psalm chapter 30, verse 4. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. Isaiah 6, 3. This is when um, Isaiah is in the temple and he sees the Lord seated on the throne and the seraphim, these flying creatures are flying in front of him. One called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That's the only characteristic of God that's given three descriptions in the Bible. Holiness. The Bible never says God is love, love, love. God is grace, grace, grace. Or God is justice, justice, justice. Those are all true, but holiness is the one that's given three which means that if there's one attribute of God that rises above all others, and I don't think you should pit attributes of God against each other, but if there's one that's overriding, it's his holiness because it's three times holy God. And in Revelation, we see the same thing. The four living, Revelation 4, 8, the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. The best definition of God's holiness that I found is by R.C. Sproul in his book, The Holiness of God, which is an excellent book. And let me give you his quote. He says this, When the Bible calls God holy, it means primarily that God is transcendentally separate. He is so far above and beyond us that he seems almost totally foreign to us. God is too great for us. He is too awesome. He makes difficult demands on us. He's the mysterious stranger who threatens our security. In his presence, we quake and tremble. Meeting him personally may be our greatest trauma. That's a great definition. It's a scary definition, but I think it's true. And so when we come before our God in prayer, Jesus is saying, He's sovereign, 
He's powerful. He rules and reigns in heaven. He is holy. You are coming before the absolute sovereign holy God of the universe. But at the same time, he is your father. He's not a distant God. He's not a mean God. He's a loving father who just happens to have these attributes of being holy and awesome and powerful. All right, so what's the next thing that we see about prayer? Number five, our ultimate desire should be to submit to the kingship of God as our great sovereign. Look at verse 10. Your kingdom come. What does kingdom assume? There is a king. And when we pray for God's kingdom to come, what we're saying is, is that we want to submit under the kingship of God. He has a kingdom. We want him to, be, to rule and reign. We want his plan and purposes in his kingdom, his kingly rule to come in our lives, in our church, in our family, in our nation. That's what we want to come. Now, obviously, God is king over everything already, but this is a prayer for God to come in specific ways to bring his kingly rule in our lives. And then number six, our ultimate goal also should be to see his will, plan, and purposes accomplished instead of our will, plans, and purposes accomplished. What does he say there in the second half of verse 10? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want God's will, God's plan, God's purposes, God's agenda. That's what we want. We don't want our own, but we want God's. Okay, so that's the first part of the prayer. The first part of the prayer focuses on worship. Okay, so if you want to break down this prayer and you just look at the pattern here, the first part of the prayer is really praise and worship. And you're worshiping God because of his character. I would say it's actually two parts. It's worship and it's submission. You're worshiping God because of his character, because of his holiness, because he's your heavenly father, but you're also submitting to his kingship and to his will. So you're getting yourself in a posture of of worship and submission before you even ask for anything. Okay? Now, number seven of our top ten list, it is entirely appropriate to pray for daily needs. So the third thing is we, we, we petition or pray for needs. Give us this day our what? Daily bread. Give me what I need today. Yes, I can pray for things in the future, but I have needs today. Pray for daily needs, whatever those needs may be. Is there a difference between needs and wants? Notice that Jesus says, pray for daily bread. Bread was the the, the basic sustenance of that culture that they needed to live on. Okay? Okay. Number eight on the top ten list. We are sinners who are in desperate need of forgiveness, so we should confess sin in prayer with the confidence that God forgives and cleanses. Verse 12, and forgive us our debts. Does your translation say debts? That word does not mean money. It means a sin debt. Forgive us our guilt. We are, in sin, we are in debt of guilt and sin, and we ask God to forgive us. Now, yes, did Jesus pay for our sins on the cross, past, present, and future? Yes, but he still wants us to go and confess those. Because what does 1 John 1, 9 say? 
1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Okay? So we move, if you want to look at the parts of the prayer, it starts with worship, submission, petition, praying for needs, and then there's confession and repentance. You're confessing sin. You're being broken before God. You're you're being specific about those sins. I would challenge you to be very specific when you confess. Sometimes it's easy to say, Lord, please forgive me of my sins. Don't we often say that? Lord, please forgive me of my anger that I displayed this morning to my wife when I said something I shouldn't have said to her. Isn't that more specific? So I would say be specific when you confess your sins because God likes to deal in specifics. All right, number nine. Because God has forgiven us in Christ, we need to pray for power and humility to forgive others. Notice what he says. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. We need to have a forgiving spirit. So this really talks about, I would say, interpersonal relationships or conflict in your life that you're praying for. Relationships, conflict, Anybody here have interpersonal relational conflicts in their life? Anybody here have issues at all? No. Anybody here have a hard time forgiving? And so Jesus is saying, because you can bank on the fact that I've forgiven you on the cross, then you can pray for power and strength to go forgive others. Um, Look at what Ephesians chapter 4 says. Ephesians four thirty one through 32 Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Why can we forgive one another? Because God in Christ forgave us. So it starts with worship, submitting to God's kingdom and power, asking for daily needs, confessing sin, repenting, dealing with interpersonal relationships and conflict and forgiveness issues and things you're dealing with with people. And then the last thing here that he talks about, number 10, is, whoops, we should pray for God's protection against the temptation of sin and the attack of the devil. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Some translations have the evil one. I, I actually take it to be the evil one. Protect us from Satan. And Satan's design. So what we're here, what, what the last part of the prayer is, we're praying for protection and um, saying no to temptation. And if you look at um, Ephesians 6.16, it's part of the putting on the full armor of God. It says there, all right, clicker, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. The devil's going to come with you every day with flaming darts. Now, does this mean that every time you pray, all six of these elements need to be there? Not necessarily. But I would say this. Numbers one and two really should be first, I would say, majority of the time. The rest of these can be interchanged in whatever order you want to do them. Uh, but I really think when you come and worship, um, sometimes I even think confession needs to kind of move ahead of maybe petitions. But Jesus gives us a template here not to be legalistically, you know, adhered to 
like saying it without any meaning. It's the, it's the principle behind what he's saying along with the rest of Scripture, that we, we surrender ourselves and worship to him. We submit to his kingship, to his authority. We ask him for our daily needs. We confess sin. We repent. We pray for interpersonal relationships, conflict, forgiveness, and then we ask him to protect us from temptation and from the devil. Okay? So that's a template for prayer. So let me ask you a question. A lot of people say, man, I can't pray for very long. You know, sometimes I fall asleep, or, you know, if I have a quiet time, I, I maybe give like a 30-second prayer. Let me ask you a question. How long do you think you could spend, an average person could spend doing number one with some extra scripture verses? Just give a number. Maybe, can we say at least two minutes? You think somebody, like two minutes? You think somebody could spend two minutes on number two? Okay, what about needs? Probably more time there, right? Let's say 10 minutes. What about confession? It depends on what you did that day. Or confession, maybe two minutes. What about interpersonal relationships and conflict? A little longer, maybe five minutes. What about protection from temptation and taxing the devil? Three minutes. Okay, I'm, I'm just being real random here. Let's add these up. Those of you that are math. 14, 16, 21, 24 minutes. And if you read a passage of Scripture before that, how long would that be? Let's make it six minutes, okay? So right there, you've got a 30-minute quiet time and you didn't even realize you could do it for 30 minutes. I'm not saying be legalistic and have your quiet time be 30 minutes, but I'm just thinking, if you start breaking down every aspect of the prayer and really thinking about those things, you could really be praying a lot longer than you think you can pray. And I would challenge you to do this, pray out loud if you can. If it, if it doesn't work, it has to work. For, I fall asleep if I don't pray out loud. When I get up early in the morning and I go into the guest room to pray, I kneel on the bed, I kneel on the side of the bed in the guest room, and I pray out loud. Because if I, don't, if I start praying in my mind, I start falling asleep. But you don't have to pray out loud. It's just what helps me. Okay? So those are the top ten principles that Jesus gives on prayer with the Lord's Prayer. Okay. Any questions on that before we move forward? On, on prayer or the Lord's Prayer or observations? I heard a hmm. You sure you don't want to bring it up now? You can't just talk to me about it later. All right, we'll have a good discussion tonight. You don't want to launch it? I'm going to draw it out of you, Don. Okay. All right. All right, we may have, we'll, we'll have an interesting discussion tonight. All right, so verses 14 and 15, I put as a confusing summary statement because it's, it's let's read verses 14 and 15. It can be kind of confusing. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Brings up two controversial issues. Number one, is our receiving forgiveness from God conditional upon how well we forgive others? Meaning that God's not going to forgive us unless we forgive. Is that what Jesus, can, can that be what Jesus is saying based upon the rest of the scriptures? If not, we're all in trouble because that's a works-based system. So I don't think that's exactly what Jesus is teaching. It's not, a sal- it's not salvation by works. And the other question is, what limit is there to forgiveness? For example, 
if you were raped by a rapist, do you have to forgive the rapist? If a drunk driver kills your kids, do you have to forgive that drunk driver? If you live in a country where there's a dictator that kills Christians and he kills your family, do you have to forgive him? Brings up some questions about forgiveness. Jesus tells us that we have to forgive. We may not like it. It may be difficult. And it doesn't ever mean that you have to be best friends with that person or ever talk to that person again or, or not or not seek repercussions or legal ramifications against that person, but in your heart you need to forgive. And that sometimes can be one of the hardest things to do. And so I think what Jesus is saying here is, if you don't have a forgiving heart, it's probably evidence that you haven't received forgiveness. Does that make sense? If you as a Christian have a very, very difficult time forgiving, then it probably means you you haven't really truly experienced the forgiveness that God has given you. Because when you understand God's forgiveness of you, it frees you to forgive others because you realize that God wasn't obligated to forgive you and he did anyway. So I think that's what Jesus is saying there. I don't think he's saying it's a works-based thing um, based upon how often, you know, how, how much you forgive that God's going to forgive you. Like it's a conditional thing. Okay? All right. So the first area of piety or religious show that Jesus addressed that they were doing for show was giving alms or giving to the needy. He says do it, but do it in secret. Number two, he talks about prayer. He says don't make a show of it or babble or try to make a big deal of it, drawing attention to yourself, but here's how you should pray. We've got the the model prayer here. Now he moves into fasting, which may be confusing for us because in our culture, in the evangelical culture, we don't fast like we probably should. So let's read about fasting, verses 16 through 18. And when you fast, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who's in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Okay, let's talk a little bit about fasting in the history of ancient Israel. Number one, in ancient Israel, the only time they were required to fast was during the Day of Atonement. It was very limited, okay? By the time Jesus' day came around, the Pharisees would fast twice a week, on Mondays and Thursdays. They would fast, okay? But what they would do was they would make themselves look like they would go in and probably, I don't know how they did it, but they would go in and mess up their hair and put bags in their eyes and put dust and ashes and maybe like smell really bad and come out looking like they were fasting. Look at me, I've been fasting. You've got to be sympathetic with me. And Jesus says, don't do that. Actually, if you're going to fast, take a shower, wash your hair, wash your face, don't draw attention to yourself, just fast. I mean, if you want to let other people know that you're fasting just so they can pray with you, that's fine, but don't make a big deal about fasting. So that you know, people look, oh, he must be really religious. He must be really, or she must be really spiritual. She's fasting. Which brings up a question you're probably asking. What's fasting? Well, there's different types of biblical fasts, and we're going to talk about fasting tonight. Because when was the last time you had a teaching on fasting? See, it shows we don't talk about it much, does it? <laughs> but notice what Jesus says. When you fast. He doesn't say if you fast. He's not commanding it, but he's assuming you're going to do it and that we're going to do it. 
Now, let's talk about different types of fasts. One fast is to completely go without food and water. Um, Ezra did this, Esther did this, and Paul did this. It would be for a very short period of time because you probably couldn't go a very long time, at least without water. This would be a very short fast, maybe like a 24-hour fast without any food or water, okay? Another type of fast would be fasting without food or water over a lengthy period of time. This would be like a 40-day fast. No water. Moses did it at Mount Sinai. Um, I think this would be something that would be supernaturally enabled, and I would not recommend anybody do this. This would be like a very special thing that would happen in the Old Testament. The most common type of fast I think that people do is fasting with no food, but you can drink water. Okay? The question is how many days, um, the times that I fasted, um, day two and three are killers. Because the first day you're just getting used to it, but day two and three your body's getting rid of all of its impurities. So you have really bad headaches and you feel really fatigued. But once you break past the third day, you kind of get a stride, at least I've found, where it, se- it seems to be a little bit easier to deal with and you can go for longer periods of time. Um, I've not fasted for longer than a week. I've had pastor friends that have fasted for three weeks without food and water. Um, and so, again, we're not legalistic saying how long you should do it, when you should do it. Um, some say Daniel went on a partial fast. He um, just drank uh, vegetables and water. So there's some people could say, you know, if you want to do a Daniel fast, it's just like basically vegetables and water is what you're, no meat or, or whatever. So there's different fasts that are in the Bible. But here's what I would want to say as far as the New Testament. There is no clear mandate in Scripture as to how long a Christian should fast, how often we should fast, or when we should fast. Okay? Jesus just assumed we would do it, and we find examples of people doing it in both the Old and New Testament. Okay? So, Jesus just assumes fasting is going to be a part of your normal every, not every day, but your normal part of the Christian life is fasting. Now, let's talk about the purpose of fasting. It's not a way to somehow earn God's favor or impress him with our righteousness. It's not like, man, if I fast, God's going to love me more or God's going to bless me more. I better fast so I can get in God's good graces. That, that's, that's denying the cross work of Christ. It's saying basically the cross wasn't enough. So, I've got another top 10 list, okay? I gave you the top 10 principles for, fa- for prayer. Here are the top 10 purposes for fasting. Why do we fast? I'm going to give you 10 examples throughout the Bible of why a person, a Christian, would fast. And again, we're not told how long we should fast. We're not told when we should fast or um, how, what was the other one? How long, how often, and when, okay? It, it, Jesus assumes, Jesus says when you fast. But here's number one. Top 10 purposes. Number one, to strengthen us in prayer. Let me give you a quote here from John Calvin. He said, When men are to pray to God concerning any great matter, it would be expedient to appointing fasting along with prayer. Um, Fasting gets you in a posture to intensify your prayer. 
the times that you fast, you are putting yourself in a position to be dependent upon God because you're going without food. And you're, you're basically saying, for this period of time, I'm purposely going without food so that I can focus my body, my mind, my soul, everything upon Christ, and I'm going to go into an intense time of seeking Him and be strengthened in prayer. And that's why, that's, that's reason number one. Number two, we find specific examples in the Bible when people fasted to seek guidance, especially the church. Um, in Acts 13, 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. The church in Antioch, before they sent the first missionaries out, it says before they sent Paul and Barnabas out, they were fasting, and I'm assuming they were seeking direction as a church for what God had for them in their missionary endeavor. And then also in Acts 14, uh, 23, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. When the church was going to choose leaders, elders, when they went into a period of deciding who were going to be leaders of the church, they spent time in prayer and fasting to seek guidance as to who the leaders of the church were going to be. Now, sometimes, just because you fast doesn't mean that you're automatically going to get clarity as to an issue. Doesn't mean God's always going to give you the clarity. But, Fasting does put you in a posture to be hearing more from the Lord and to be submitting more to his leadership. And so oftentimes throughout church history, and even in the early church, when the church was faced with a huge decision, they went through a period of fasting to seek guidance. Another reason is to express grief. Back in Judges 20-26, when the nation of Israel was going to have to go to war against Benjamin, one of their own tribes, then all the people of Israel, the whole army, went up and came to Bethel and wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. They were just greed. Sometimes, whether a church or a nation or a family or an individual, when you're just heartbroken over something, sometimes you just need to fast. Or God may call you to fast as a way to express that, that grief. God may call you to do that. Another reason to fast Number four is to seek deliverance or protection. And we have a lot of examples of this in the Old Testament. Um, Jehoshaphat, in Second Chronicles 23-4, Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judea. And uh, Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. They were afraid of being invaded. And so when they were in a period of fear and they wanted protection from God and they wanted deliverance, they fasted. Ezra, the same thing. It happened in Ezra. Ezra 8, 21 through 23. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God and seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way since we had told the king. The hand of our God is for good on all who seek him and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this and he listened to our entreaty. So they're getting ready to take a journey and there's going, to be sol- there's going to be enemies coming against them. Ezra says, let's fast before we go to ask for God's protection. And then Esther, before she's going to go talk to the king, and she goes back to Mordecai and tells the Jews in Esther 4.16, 
Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Remember, she's going to go in and not sure if she's going to live or die, but she's going to ask him to stop this plan to, to commit genocide against the Jews. Okay. Another reason why you would fast is to express repentance and for God to, to come back to, to us. First um, Samuel 7. Six. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day there and said, We've sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. We have sinned against the Lord. And then Joel 2, 12-13. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Return to me, repent. And then the, the one example we have is Jonah. You guys remember the story of Jonah? Pagan city, wicked city. Jonah goes in and preaches eight words. Basically, 40 days and you're going to be toast. 40 days and God's going to do Sodom and Gomorrah part two. He's going to rain down fire. You're dead. And Jonah doesn't expect the response. He expects them to just continue on in their depravity. But the king calls for the whole nation to fast. So in Jonah 3, 6 through 9, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes, and he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything, let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. He even called for the animals to fast. That's pretty serious. And God did. God relented. And Jonah got mad. Number six, to humble ourselves before God. Psalm thirty-five, thirteen. But I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. Sometimes you fast just to humble yourself. Another one is to show concern for the work of God. Maybe there's a particular ministry that has burdened you or a particular um, ministry endeavor or missions endeavor or something that's about to happen in the life of a church or ministry and you just feel specifically led to, to, to fast to kind of come alongside that, that ministry opportunity. That's what happened to Nehemiah. Remember at the beginning of Nehemiah? They said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. So Nehemiah hears that the gates are, uh, the, the wall's broken down. It needs to be rebuilt. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Before Nehemiah went to go do the great work of, of rebuilding the wall, he fasted. We also see this happening to Daniel. When Daniel was burdened about Jerusalem and he was in Babylonia or he was in exile, Daniel 9 3, I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Number eight, to help overcome areas of temptation. We, we won't look at this, but if you go back to Matthew 4, just a few chapters earlier, it's when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights without any food. He fasted and quoted scripture. And so sometimes if you're faced with a really serious area of temptation in your life and it's just hounding you, maybe God's calling you to fast for a period of time to really get strength to deal with that area of temptation. Sometimes, number nine, 
to express special times of love and worship to the Lord. Uh, we see this in Anna, the prophetess. In Luke 2, 36-70, there was a prophetess Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. As Jesus is, you know, all that stuff related to the birth of Christ and, and him coming on the scene, she just spends special time in the temple fasting as a, as a special time of worship. And then number 10, to help minister to the needs of others. Interesting what God says in Isaiah 58, 6-8. Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke. Uh, it is not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. He's talking about social justice issues there. Giving bread to the hungry, helping the homeless, covering those that don't have clothes, dealing with the oppressed. And he says, this is the kind of fast I choose. Um, to, to, to help others in times of need. So there's 10 teachings on fasting. And Jesus says, when you fast, don't make a big deal of it. Don't make your face look gaunt, but wash yourself and, and God knows what you're doing. Any questions on fasting? It's, a, it's an interesting concept if you've never fasted. or um, As our church, we've had specific periods of prayer and fasting over the years where we've done that. And call the church to, to prayer and fasting. And so I'm not legalistic. I can't say, hey, you know, tomorrow everybody needs to go fast. I think you need to be led of the Lord to do it. I think it's something, um, you know, every Christian should at least try once and see how it works, I guess. Um, but again, any questions on that before we move on? Okay. So Jesus addresses three areas of public piety or public religion that the Pharisees were, were abusing, giving to the needy, praying, and fasting. Now he's going to shift gears and start talking about money, okay? He's going to get real personal. Treasures in heaven, all right? So Jesus is really stepping on toes in this whole sermon. I mean, think of all the issues he's addressed so far. Hey, if you're angry, it's like you committed murder. Hey, if you lust in your heart, it's like you committed adultery. And then he starts talking about divorce. He says, hey, you're speaking untruthfully by giving these, these oaths. Don't love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And then now he's starting to talk about finances and treasures. And so let's talk about treasures in heaven. Let's look at verses 19 through 24. Do not... And the, the tense there really means stop doing this. <laughs> stop. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve 
two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Okay? 1 Timothy 6.10 says this. Not money is the root of all kinds of evil, because we have to have money to survive, but the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Would you guys agree with that? That the love of money is the root of all different types of evils. It causes major issues. So what Jesus is concerned here with is our heart and our generosity as opposed to greed and materialism. Verse 21 is very crucial. What does he say? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Meaning, whatever you spend your time and your money and your energy and your devotion and your checkbook and your finances on, that really shows who your God is. It reveals the idols of your heart. It shows where your heart really is. Because you are going to put your heart into what you treasure. And if it's earthly things, and if it's for things that are temporal, then Jesus says you're just, your, your heart reveals where your heart is. Your heart is, is for those things. Timothy goes on to say this in, in 1 Timothy 6, 17-19. As for the rich in this present age, so he's not against rich people. There's not, the Bible is not necessarily against being rich. It's how you use your money. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so they may take hold of that which is truly life. Now, he talks about the rich in this present age. You might not think you're rich. I don't think I'm rich. But compared to 98% of the rest of the world, we are rich. In India, do you know how much they live on per day? $2 a day. David, we've seen some of those places that they've lived in India. So, comparatively speaking, we have a lot more wealth than other people. But what Jesus and Paul are both saying is that it's not a sin to be rich. But we're not to put our hope in riches. We're not to become prideful. We're to trust in the Lord because he could easily take it away and we're to be generous and that we're to be storing up treasures in heaven. Now, let me give you seven principles this time. Are you ready? I'm not going to give you 10. We're going to break the pattern. There's a really good little book called The Treasure Principle. It's by a guy named Randy Alcorn. He's also written a good book called Heaven. Um, and so he gives seven principles of stewardship that I thought were pretty interesting that I think you can tie into what Jesus is saying here. Number one, he says, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. <laughs> An interesting way of thinking. You can't take it with you. Can you take, you've never seen a hearse carrying a U-Haul. That's what my dad always used to say. Anybody ever seen a hearse carrying a U-Haul? The King Tut and those guys thought you could be buried with all your, you can't take it with you, but what does Jesus say? Store up treasures where? You can send it on ahead in heaven. Now, I don't know what that looks like, but he's saying store up treasures in heaven as opposed to storing up treasures here on earth. 
The other thing that the Bible says is God owns everything. I'm his money manager. We are to manage the assets that God has entrusted to us. This is what I was talking about earlier. My heart always goes where I put God's money. And he says this, watch what happens when you reallocate money from the temporal things to eternal things. Have you ever stopped and thought about how much money you spend on things that aren't really going to matter? And how much money you spend on things that really matter? And sometimes as a family or as an individual, you need to take an inventory and say, you know what? These things are important. And these things are needs. And these things I've, and I've got to take care of. But how often do we sit and say, you know, how much money am I really spending on things that aren't, are going to burn up one day and not going to really matter? And how much am I spending on things that are eternal, that are on God's work and God's plan and God's purposes and, and advancing the gospel and, and advancing the kingdom and, and evangelism and missions and, and, and for the good of, of the gospel? Um, and, the, and the other principle he says is heaven, not earth, is my home. This is not our ultimate, I mean, our ultimate home is in heaven. This is, we're not living for this world. He also says, I should not live for the dot, but for the line. Now, let me say what, a lot of people, the dot is, okay, like, what he means by that is, so much, we are so focused on the now, that we don't ever think about the future, because we have so many needs that are pressing in on us right now, and so all we can really see in our life is like the dot right here. But there's a dot right here in the present that extends out into eternity, and so many times we're focused on just being, we're so consumed with what's going on right now that we don't see that we could be living for what God has in store for us out there. Um, so he says, don't live for the dot, live for the line. Then number six, he says this, giving is the antidote for materialism. Giving is a joyful surrender to a greater person and a greater agenda. It dethrones me and exalts him. And then his last principle is, God prospers me not to raise my standard of living, but to raise my standard of giving. And so, let me just address two things here. And I may may be stepping on toes, but that's okay. You've got shoes on, unless you've got sandals or barefoot. Um, Number one, one of the reasons I think a lot of people in churches don't systematically give tithes and offerings is because they're so much into debt that they can't. Would you guys agree with that? There's a lot of people plagued by debt, so they don't have the resources to be able to give to the Lord. Um, and so that, that's a problem. But number two, the other reason why people don't give tithes and offerings in church. It also starts with a D. I think they're just flat out disobedient. Um, Jesus is very specific here about laying up treasures in heaven where your treasure is, there's your heart. All throughout the rest of the New Testament, it talks about giving to the Lord through the local church. It talks about in the Old Testament tithing. So it's an expectation of Christian people to be givers, not just of their time, not just of their talents, but also of their treasures. And so Jesus addresses it here, and Jesus talked a lot about money. Jesus probably talked about money 
a, a third of what Jesus taught was about money and resources because um, he knows it was such a, a huge trap. And Paul talks about it too. And so right here in the middle of the sermon, he says, you need to lay up treasures in heaven. Now, if you're listening to Jesus, what are you thinking? Jesus, you've not seen my budget. Jesus, you don't know how I have trouble making ends meet each week. Jesus, I stress, I worry, I hyperventilate over the finances. I mean, a lot of us are probably thinking that. Ah, don't talk to me about money, Jesus, I can't handle it. Guess what he says next? Look at verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. And he addresses the need. He knows Jesus anticipates the response of his people. When, when Jesus drops the bomb and says, listen, you've got to start storing up treasures in heaven, not on earth. Don't live for the temporal, but live for eternity. Where your treasure is, there's your heart's going to be also. You need to be a generous person. You can't serve two masters. You can only serve, you know, you, you don't be an idolater. You, can, you cannot serve God in money. When he lays the gauntlet down there, he knows there's going to be fear and anxiety and stress. And so he addresses it. So let's look, in light of what he's just said in verses 19 through 24, he's going to address anxiety and worry. So let's see what Jesus says. Therefore, therefore is, 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 is addressing what he's just spoken of in verses 19 through 24. Therefore, in light of what I've just told you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. And he's going to give a couple of illustrations here. So let's look at the first illustration, verse 26. Look at the birds. The first illustration is birds. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are they not more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? So he says, birds don't even, have you ever seen a bird work for a living? What do birds do? They fly, poop, and eat. And somehow God provides for birds. And he's saying, how much more important are you than a bird? If I can provide for a bird, just think about how more important you are. I can provide for your daily needs. Our problem is sometimes our wants get us into debt and it becomes an issue. God promises to provide for our needs. So the first one is about the birds. The second one is about lilies of the field. Look at verse um, 28. And why are you anxious about clothing? Okay, the first was about food. Now it's about what you're going to wear. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. But I tell you, even Solomon, who was the, the royalist, richest king in all of Israel's history, and all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your Heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Clothing, basic needs, right? Food and clothing and the basic necessities of life. Jesus says, Don't stress out about those things. God knows you need them. God will provide. Now, does this mean God is always going to provide for you and you don't have to do anything on your part? 
or that sometimes you don't have to live with the consequences of the decisions you've made? Um, No, I think in general principle, God will take care of us. But verse 33, I think, is the real meat of what Jesus is saying here. What does he say in verse 33? But, if you're going to seek after a thing, if you're going to... If you're going to be pursuing something, if you're going to put your energy into something, if you're going to get excited about something, here's what you need to get excited about. Seek first, and that word seek means to actively seek, to pursue. Two things, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Jesus says, seek two things. And it goes back to his prayer. It goes back to the two issues that we've looked at. The kingdom of God. Seek first his kingdom. His rule, his reign, his fame, his agenda. Our ultimate goal is to seek the rule and reign and majesty and sovereignty and kingdom of God. His kingdom come, his will be done. Our heavenly father, hallowed be your name. Seek that and... His righteousness. That's been a theme throughout the entire sermon. Hunger and thirst after righteousness. Your righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees. Practice your righteousness not like a hypocrite. Seek after his righteousness, which is the power to live a holy life of obedience. And so one of the things that God wants us to put our attention to is this. Don't stress and fret and spend all your time and energy worrying about how you're going to get your daily needs met. God's got that taken care of. Put all of your time and energy and and, and, and devotion into seeking his kingdom and seeking his righteousness. And he says, what's going to happen when you do that? All these things will be added unto you. So God is most concerned with our heart and his agenda and his will. A lot of times when it comes to finances, it's about my will be done. And my kingdom come. Sometimes we've got to stop and evaluate the way we spend money and our finances and ask those questions. Am I spending money so that my will will be done and my kingdom will come? Or am I spending money so that, or am I living the way so God's kingdom will come and God's will will be done? And am I living in such a way that I am hungering and thirsting after his righteousness? And the promise is, God says all these things will be added to you. So don't be anxious. 